Welcome to Inspiring People and Places, where we interview national leaders in the architectural, engineering, construction, and development industry in an effort to educate, innovate, and inspire industry professionals to disrupt the status quo, improve their project teams, and steward public and private investments more effectively. I'm your host, BJ Kramer, President and CEO of MCFA. Allow me to introduce today's guest. Inspiring People and Places, today... We have an episode at least a few of you have been waiting for because you've texted me and emailed me, when's, when's the man coming on? So today I get to introduce our founder at MCFA, Michael C. Furman. MCFA stands for MC Furman and Associates. So we're going to get to dive deep into the founding story of MCFA, how it came to be, the many bobs and weaves that Michael's taken to put us in a position to continue growing and inspiring people and places inside of our company and hopefully inside of our client organizations. So without further ado, Michael Furman, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, BJ. Thanks for having me. Michael, Michael might be, you know, this, this is, this is an important statement to make. Michael is probably my most loyal listener, or at least he's in competition with my father. So shout out dad. Thanks for always listening. But Michael, Michael has given Mike Stedman, our producer, feedback on how we can continuously improve. Michael constantly gives me feedback on how I can continuously improve. So now I get to put him on the hot seat and I will be sure to tell him how he can continuously improve uh, for the 200th episode. So that's, that's, that's the other comment I need to make is this is our 100th recording. Maybe, maybe it'll be 101. I think it's 100. So that's why we saved this one for Michael. Uh, I will give a quick reflection and thanks to Mike Stedman, our producer, for getting me here. For those of you who don't know, we recorded probably 10 of these that never went on air because I was just trying to get comfortable being uncomfortable behind a mic. And Mike Stedman coached me along the way, has been an advocate for us. His team has done an unbelievable job producing people that listen for the first time constantly say like, hey, that's a real podcast. It's not just you talking into it an iPhone. So Mike Stedman, thank you for that. We would not be here today without you and Michael Furman to make him feel a little more pressure. I would not be at MCFA today if it were not for him founding the company in 2003 with his wife, Becky. So Michael, you know the deal. How did Michael Furman come to 2023 as the founder, chief relationship officer, principal planner at MCFA? Where did it start? Uh, talk us through the career journey. And you know how much I love being called the founder, which is... Uh, I do. Uh, so, so I will continue to do it throughout the entire podcast. Fantastic. So, you know, like you, I'm a South Jersey kid. I kind of worked my way through college. And this is important. It's really carried through my entire career in the hospitality industry, along with Becky. So really, you know, yes, I went to graduate school. Yes, I went to undergrad studied planning and public policy, but really all of my education truly was working in Atlantic City and Philadelphia in the hospitality industry. When I graduated undergraduate, I became, I don't know if folks out there know what a VISTA volunteer is. It was the precursor to AmeriCorps. I spent two years living in North Camden, doing working with nonprofit agencies, supporting at-risk youth for two years. Left there and became the city planner of the city of Altoona, Pennsylvania. And two years after that, I met a gentleman 
on the golf course in North Carolina who hired me to work for a large A&E firm that was currently building the Pittsburgh International Airport called Michael Baker. So I spent time with Michael Baker in both their engineering space and folks who know me wouldn't be shocked to learn that I was a tad bit unmanageable. And they traded me to Texas down in Houston to their energy division, Baker Energy, where I spent three years and learned a ton. And that was up until 2003. And with some encouragement of, of some clients that I had with Baker and my boss, who has since you know passed, but Baker, he really encouraged me to go out my own. And Becky left Ernst and Young, and because you know, I still need you know a lot of management and guidance when it comes to things. So we started a business, right? And it was really, I love to romanticize, right? How how that got started. But it was really, I felt the big AE firms were not providing good client service to a very, very important client doing very important things. And I felt that I could do it better with better service and quite make it more enjoyable for everyone involved. And that's how we got started. And just, you know, and I will say this, you know, folks, and I was talking to Mike beforehand, everyone thinks being an entrepreneur or, or whatever that word means, it's easy to start a business. And you'll look out, there'll be lots of how to start a business, right? Just crush it, just do it, just do that. It, it is absolutely so difficult to start a business and sustain a business, right? And BJ, we, we were talking about this. It's at this point, after 20 years, BJ kind of sat me down, we were having a conversation. He's like, you can do anything you want just not everything, right? When you start a business, you have to care about everything more than anything. Everything is the, everything is the most important thing, everything. And that my career journey has been translating from caring about everything to not caring about everything, right? There's a, and Mike, you were asking me at what point does that happen, right? Where Everything isn't anything. And I'd say seven to 10 years. And I got really sick because I acted that way. And that kind of was the forcing function. You can't care about everything. Right. And so that's been an interesting trans, been a transition. And BJ coming on board has allowed me to really focus. Focus is a, a strong word. Right. But focus on, on some important projects, important clients. Right. So it's been really good having BJ on board. Yes. All right, just to give people a little peek behind the scenes, we had to switch some technology. Michael was talking about how hard it is to start a business. So, Michael, I want to talk about really what did the first one to three years look like so people understand what that feels like from a founder. And and we'll get into, you know, hiring the first employee and all of that. So you you left Michael Baker. You had a client that was basically pumping you up. You had a supervisor at Michael Baker, a boss that was encouraging you to to do it. Uh, spread your wings. Then you have to do it. So October two thousand three, you file for an LLC and make a bunch yeah, of yeah, exactly. I, September twenty first two thousand three, started the LLC, and September twenty second, just wads of wads of wads of cash just fell. 
you know, from, from that's how easy it is. Just get an EIN number and off you go. So all those listening out there can get an EIN number and just start writing checks. But look, it, it took three, it probably took four months to get my first dollar in the car, in the door. And that was dramatic and really, you know, part of MCFA lore, how we got our first dollar. But like probably year, probably year one, which is a lot of beg, borrowing, and stealing to kind of pay the bills, right? And keep it and keep it going, right? Working out of the house, working out of the back of a Subaru, basically, right? Running between Aberdeen Proving Ground and Fort Monmouth. And I lived equidistance between the both. Spent a lot of time on 295, right? And just there's so much opportunity, right? We have a saying, there's lots of opportunity on the floor. Just I'll do that. 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 And a lot of running back and forth and from one project to the next project to one client to the next client, word of mouth spreads, relationships I've had in the past came through for me. And so your one through three was just like the running as fast as you can, doing, looking back on it, probably C quality work but A plus quality responsiveness and A plus quality customer service, right? If a client wanted to talk on Sunday at 9.30 in the morning, no problem. Client wanted me to be there at in El Paso tomorrow for lunch, I'd figure it out, right? There was a lot of running around. Just let, let, me, let me play devil's advocate here. I, you... We can be hard on ourselves about, quote, quality of work, mainly because of the standard we hold ourselves to. But I I want to give a little insight into the, the goings-on behind the scenes at MCFA. The big AEC world is focused on a scope of work from a client and an RFP and a deliverable. Where where I think that we have differentiated ourselves, and Michael, Michael is alluding to this, it's we call it customer service or we call it white glove customer service from a core value standpoint, but it's it's really listening and helping solve problems. And you can't put that in a deliverable. You can't put it in a scope of work because most of the time, the scope of work that people are getting is is not a well-defined problem. And the consulting side of this is the taking the call at 9.30 in the morning or 11 o'clock on a Sunday afternoon or Sunday morning. The deliverable you know, all right, maybe we didn't have the the printing press of marketing department that's putting out the prettiest product that's just going to sit on a shelf and collect dust. But to your credit, master plans were not about products. Master plans were about an executional concept to, to keep moving the ball forward. You know, yeah, I think, you know, we, I've always had a saying, the minute the customer goes to the scope of work, you have a huge problem, right? And yeah, I remember, you know, BJ knows knows our first customer, Greg Cooster, very, very well, right? Just a just a patient, excellent human being, right? Who stuck with him and maybe he shouldn't have, but really gave us gave MCS chance we wouldn't be here without him. But I remember one time he had a he had a, one of those old fashioned like desks you see, like in Mad Men or TV. He spun around in his chair, went to go pull out a scope of work. And I jumped up and I slammed that drawer back. Do not pull out the scope of work. Do not pull it out. What is the problem? I will fix it. And that's the last time anyone's ever kind of turned to pull a scope of work. I think that was 2002. 
2005, right? And so, yeah, it's all about what's the problem? What, what are we trying to solve? What's in the scope? What's not in the scope, right? That's what we did. We, we were excellently delivering the things that weren't in the scope. Right. If you wanted steak, we gave you steak. If you wanted chicken, we gave you chicken. Right. Was there chimichurri sauce on the chicken? No. But you got chicken. But guess what? You're perfectly happy to give us more work. Right. Because you were the most important person. Right. During the time we were with you. And you remain the most important person. So that's, it was all about providing service. Right. You, you know, good service when you see it. You just do. And through the early years, and almost, I mean, you have to tell me if we don't do this anymore, but I would not hire you if you didn't work for tips. I mean, that was like some sort of OCD stuff I had going on in my brain, but it was a, a longstanding thing here. So, all right, I'll, I'll jump into that. I'll, I'll go down that rabbit hole for a second. Please. I'm like, see, see how I turned it around? Yeah. The concept of working for tips was was reinforcing the idea that you understood what customer service looked like, felt like, and how to do it. Because folks who who work for tips are fighting for those dollars and they know that the human experience that they're going to have in that engagement, whether it's at a at a coffee shop or at a bar or at a restaurant or at a at a resort or a, a hotel, you, you have the opportunity to make their day or not. That is what hospitality is. And I think that that is still ingrained in our culture. I don't know that everybody uses the concept of work for tips when we talk about white glove customer service and interviewing, but white glove customer service is still an expectation. And clients, if we're not delivering that for you, give give Michael a call, not me. We've gone from one employee to... You know, we're now at 49 employees. There's been some zigs and zags and ups and downs along that path. Talk to us about going from one employee yourself or you and Becky, where you know she's managing you and you're you're managing clients to having an employee and, and making that first move. Was that was both a, as 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 you can imagine, that was a you know a highly you know, BJ and I have a mutual friend who worked at Aberdeen Proving Ground who used to counsel me all the time, never hire an employee, right? Never get an employee. Never, never, never. And he's he was in my ear for a long time. But again, you know, work we wanted to grow. We hired that that first employee who was such it was like bringing on like I have children, right? I mean, I do. It's like I am now responsible for another human being and their family. And all that that means, right? And will that person mesh with us, right? How will it go? I mean, just all the, I mean, it was just, it was a big deal. It was almost like, I can't even explain it. It was just such a leap for me to hire somebody, right? Sure, I've hired people when I was at Baker Energy and, and Michael Baker, I hired people all the time. But being responsible for them, for them to come trust me for their livelihood right? In a professional career, it was really like, you know, something, something to behold. So then we, we have one person and now we hire in, in very non-traditional ways. And then we hired two, then we hired three and, you know, speaking with Mike, you know, the big jump was when we got to 10. It was like a lot, right? 
I, I remember we were in our first office, which you, we, which we're still in, in, in Kings Highway in Haddonfield. And I had all my mentors were actually came in. It was a whole thing. Am I going to go from nine to 10? Am I going to go from nine to 10? Am I going to go from nine to 10? Right. And, you know, it was, it was such a, it was such a jump, right? Like, what are we going to do? And there's paperwork involved and all sorts of HR, which I've never seen an HR rule that I couldn't ignore. Right. And, you know, all that had to change, right? We had HR manuals, right? Things started, you know, things had to, we had to be, it became real, right? It wasn't a game anymore. Right. So suddenly it was, we had 10 people. I got to jump in. I got a question for you, Mike. One of the things I'm curious to know as you were scaling up was people were so used to you being on the site. They were so used to accepting the call at the 11th hour. But as you start to scale up, you've got to kind of find your zone of genius and start to hand off stuff. What was that like with the clients? Because I can feel kind of guilty about it. Speaking personally with someone that runs an agency, you know, I come in early on, I get them fired up about the podcast and then I pass them off to our other producer. But I know that like I can't be, you know, front and center for every client. So I'm seeing myself get a little bit further away from some of the clients that we've brought in, but I know it's part of growing and scaling a business. So I was, uh, I think this would be the understatement of the week when I would say I was, I was high touch with the existing clients that we had, right? I was always probably to everyone's detriment, but I was, Hey, everything. Okay. What's going on? Hey, what's going on? Right. And being really involved. But as the people grew, right, you knew you you can tell who you can leave alone and really kind of carry the banner for you, right? Early on, right? When those people make the connections. So I had a connection with Greg, right? And our person would have a connection with Greg. I feel comfortable leaving Greg with that person. And they build relationships. It kind of just it's almost like playing pickup basketball, right? Hey, we have the same team, but we're going to break it up, and I can always come back and you kind of, you know, bob and weave, right? But once you get above 10, you have to trust people, right? And and you do, right? You're going to, they're going to bring clients in that I don't even know. I mean, you know, talking about that, that was the first big kind of, oh boy, when a client was brought in, not by me, not by Becky, right? That we had nothing to do with who I didn't know. Right. And that that's that's when scale starts, right? And having the trust, right, and understanding, right, that they will be able to deliver, right, and not make us, you know, take on any undue risk or make us look bad reputationally or financially. That that, that was the big growth, right? Not I still look, I still talk to the same clients I've had for 20 years, right? And so I'm still involved in a way. I still know what's going on. But it's crazy with, you know, new clients coming. I don't even know. And that's just still to me, it amazes me. Right. And you have to, and, you, and look, people are going to fail and you have to be comfortable with that. And hopefully, you know, when they fail, it doesn't hurt you that much. Right. And so you have to give, you have to give, I mean, again, with the, with the younger staff, especially, you have to give them room to fail. Because look, you fail by learning, you, you learn by failing. Right. And you can't, you can't jump in and fix everything at all times, right? And that's been, look, that's an ongoing personal improvement I've been working on for 20 years on, right? 
not 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 jumping in and fixing everything, right? That's a there's some psychological term for that, I'm sure. So uh, let me. I, I don't want to hit every project that that we've touched or that you've touched, Michael, but I do want to kind of do a broad brush of the different types of programs and platforms that that MCFA has been involved in. In you know, you're you are an urban planning undergrad. You have a public policy master's degree. You did the Vista volunteering, and you were involved in in Altoona in the housing office. You've done. Baker Energy on large platforms. You were with Baker Engineering in the general AEC world. Started the company. BRAC was going on. You got heavily involved in military installations. And then there was there was high spend in utilities. And you started getting into energy and energy savings and resource efficiency management. And then took the leap into energy development been into construction management, program management, transportation planning, now construction engineering inspection, labs. What what is the theme that connects all the dots? Because many entrepreneurs or solopreneurs in the professional services space start out as an attorney and then they bring in other junior attorneys or an accountant and they bring in accountants. You're a planner, but We've grown wide, not deep. You know, we've got 50 employees now. It's not 50 planners. I think it's six planners. You know, maybe maybe a couple who could play planner on TV like me. What's what's the thread that connects all the dots in your mind? So I think the thing that, and again, you know, growing up in that in the AEC and the in the energy world, right? The, my time at Baker Energy was just invaluable. The thread that holds us all together is our ability to talk to the guys in the field and talk to the guys in the C-suite, right? And and bring them together. They will never be together professionally, personally, on the golf course, ever, right? But they have to work together in some way and come find some common ground. We have always been successful in dealing with a CFO and a facility manager and kind of translating both worlds to each other. Right, kind of playing that in that middle space, and all of those projects, whether it's a platform, whether it's a trans a transit project, whether it's building a, a new lab for Army Research Lab, right? All of those things happen. There's the money in the facility manager, where there's the research scientist and the facility manager. We're, we we're really we provide that project leadership from both angles, right? So we can see where the CFO is coming from, and that started from you know Becky being a CPA, right? Understanding the business side of of basically infrastructure versus the facility side, right? Of managing infrastructure, how to bring those together. They have to, they have to, they rise and fall together, right? They rise and fall together. And so that's what the common thread has been, our ability to, to, to kind of play in both worlds, right? And I, I learned that at Baker Energy, for sure, right? On a, you'll, you'll be talking to guys, turning a wrench in the, in the morning, in the afternoon, you're talking to, the business analyst and explaining why X, Y, and Z hasn't happened and why it will happen three weeks from now. Right. And both guys are looking at you and that's, that's what you have to do. And so that's, that's the common thread, right? No, whether we're on a transportation project on the turnpike, there's a built there and a guy in the field, right. And together they have to come together, right. For a finished product in a, in a civilized way. 
And that's what we do. So you, you touched on the term project leadership. And I, I want to ask you, you, Michael is famous at MCFA for the phrase, taking a project through the valley of no up the mountain of we can't. So, so talk to us about why that phrase exists, what it means to you, and, and maybe some leadership lessons that you've learned that that's not in the PMP manual, but is real world project leadership. So, you know, I, I, I view, you know, the, the project manager, right? Scope, schedule, and budget, scope, schedule, and budget. And if I haven't said it before, scope, schedule, and budget. Right. That that's that's how I'm judged, right? That's how I'm paid. And that's, you know, that, that's that's who I am, right? Holding a budget, holding a scope, right, holding a timeline. But really, you know, projects that we work on, you know, are so big and so generational that they require someone basically a shepherd, a Sherpa, right? Helping those guys like up the valley of no, because the pro I've always said if a project doesn't get canceled or die seven times, it's not really a project, right? Because projects do die, right? They're like, oh, we can't do it. Here's an obstacle. It's going to be hard. We run out of money, right? We need a new project champion, right? There's a new mission. There's a new 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 commander on 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 site, right? You have to constantly keep influencing and constantly keep guiding the project, pulling the project along, connecting the dots. Right, how how things can get done. It's almost like you're 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 building a kitchen and your general contractor walked off the job. And that's happened seven times. Right? You gotta re-get, you gotta get another plumber, you gotta get another electrician, you gotta get another plumber, you get get another electrician. And by the way, you know there's a budget out there, right? And so how do you how you do that? And you know, and some some of the clients we work on, right? Both they're both exterior and interior voices telling us that. You can't do this project. You can't do this project. It can't be done. It's never been done that way, right? And leadership is forward-looking, right? Management is like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to 3 o'clock when the whistle blows, right? Leadership is, look, in three weeks, we're going to have a huge problem. We're going to take an L unless we do A, B, and C. What do you all think? Let's get together and figure it out, right? Project management is like, hey, scope, schedule, budget. We're good, right? Project leadership is like, hey, we have to go this way so we can get back to this way, right? And do it where we're not losing money, right? Or losing time. But again, that that's that's the art as opposed to the PMP, right? The PMP approach to project management, right? Actually doing it and having the endurance to, I mean, look, it's not easy, right? When an elected official poo-boos the project in the paper, right? Or funding gets cut. In a, in a spending bill in Congress, right? Or there's a community group that's, you know, a vocal group of two that's demand X, Y, and Z happens, right? So those projects are hard. That's, that's what leadership, right? Look, if it was easy, right, everything would get done, right? So that, that's what leadership is. You really have to, and, and by the way, do it in a way that is still enjoyable to people involved with the project. Inspiring People in Places is brought to you by MCFA. MCFA is a CVE-verified, service-disabled, veteran-owned small business. At MCFA, our why is to inspire people in places through project leadership. We provide planning, strategy, program management, and construction management support services to a wide variety of public and private sector clients. 
So speaking of questions, we're going to move into a little bit of rapid fire question. You've heard it before. Favorite quote. Favorite quote. I mean, I've had the same favorite quote probably for forever in a day, make no small plans, right? That's Daniel Burnham, right? That's that, that's what it is, right? I've, I've stuck to it since planning school. I'm, I'm going to pull it up right now. So we have it. We used to have it on. We used to have it on the wall. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to read the entire quote. Make no little plans. They have no magic to stir men's blood and probably themselves will not be realized. Make big plans, aim high in hope and work, remembering that a noble logical diagram once recorded will never die, but long after we are gone will we'll be a living thing asserting itself with ever-growing insistency. Remember that our sons and grandsons are going to do things that would stagger us. Let your watchword be order and your beacon beauty. Pretty good. Most recommended book or a favorite Again, book? The most recommended a, a book that I read probably every year till I had kids was Martin Eden by John Steinbeck, right? It's just a great book about learning and striving, right? In a, in a challenging environment, right? That's a, that's a great, that's a great book. But the most gifted book, which, you know, I, I was gifted by you, BJ. The greatest salesman in the world. I, I've given out seven times, I think, this year to folks. I enjoy right, that. So, so, so you you got to give a qualifier because the the name of the book sounds like a used car salesman. Give give people a sneak peek, like convince them that a book named The Greatest Salesman in the World is worth a worthy read. So it's not. So so maybe I, I should retitle it. It's a fable. About is a fable or a parable? I don't know the difference. It's a a fable about work. It's a fable about growing up. It's a fable about finding yourself and what's important. Yeah, that's that's, that's a good point, B. It's the greatest. Yes, has it really has nothing to do with sales? It doesn't. The, the sales is just it's it's a merchant salesman learning life. All right, three people, dead or alive, if you could have a dinner party, and and because you're a foodie, I'm going to ask. Where is the dinner party being hosted? We're obviously having a omakase at Royal Sushi. Uh, omakase at Royal Sushi. And shout I think out, shout out to Jesse. You know, I think that these these folks were all around this the same time in the in the planning world in the '60s. And you know, I'm a, I'm a student of planning planning history, right? And I think history, you know, again, definitely in our profession, writes itself over. Decades, not weeks or days, right? But over decades, I would have Edmund Lincoln, probably Robert Moses. So Robert Moses from New York and Edmund Bacon from Philadelphia and Jane Jacobs, who was a, libert a libertarian leaning kind of organic, like organic planning versus top down planning, right? And have them have a debate as to seeing what everyone's done in the 60s and how it's turned out 60 years later and just have them go at it, right? And discuss, because they were all super strong personalities and just hearing them talk about why they did what they did, why they suggested what they suggested and did it work or not work, right? So the proof's in the pudding. What I decided in 1968 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, right? To build the gallery and to tear down a bunch of Frank Furness buildings, was that the right move, yes or no? Right, Mr. Bacon, right, or Robert Moses, right? 
who is right, you or Jane Jacobs, right? In doing your investments and just have them have the conversation. So I think that would be fascinating. All right. You're a public policy guy, current events, public policy, things that you are involved with outside of the office. What what gets you excited? What Where are you pouring passion outside of MCFA? I'm on a I'm on a technical school board for Camden County. We just hired a, a new superintendent. And I'm super excited for her to kind of get started and change the trajectory of some kids' lives. Right. And so being being involved in education and technical education at, at this point, really in history, is just fascinating. Right. I, I will say that. Right. Fascinating. And so I think we're. I think we're doing some good work, and I think we could do better. But I'm I'm excited about it. That that takes up a lot of time and a lot of uh, mental mental energy. On occasion, I get exercised about some issues. All right, and then to close this out, legacy. What do you want on your tombstone? How do you want to be remembered? Had a good time. Simple, straightforward. In the words of Andy Reid, the time's yours. Close us out with any thoughts or provoking inspiration to the industry? I think having a willingness to learn, right? Because what what made sense, right? We call recreating the genius of the moment from five years ago and not not being so attached to decisions you made in the past and and allow that to color your decisions you'll make for the future, right? Things change, things emerge, right? You have to be flexible and constantly be learning and being be accepting of yourself when you made suboptimal decisions, which again made perfect sense five years ago. But don't 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 lock into a decision because it's a decision because you're so in love with your own brilliance. Michael Furman, thanks for your time. Thanks for starting MCFA for taking the risk and putting in motion what what is now. You know, a fifty-person company making an impact in in all types of areas of of public and private infrastructure and development investment. Thanks for having me, Beach. All right, buddy. Everybody, thanks for your time, and until next time, have a great day and a great week. Hey, everybody! If you're enjoying this show, do us a favor and subscribe to Inspiring People and Places on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast hosting platform. We'd also greatly appreciate if you left us a review and shared this with other entrepreneurial public servants and all your friends and family in the AEC space. Be sure to visit our website, www.mcfaglobal.com. Sign up for our newsletter to stay in touch with us and learn about all of the projects and clients we're helping. Last but not least, we are hiring. We are always hiring. Do us a favor. Take a look at what jobs we have open contact us through our website or connect with me on LinkedIn. Until next time, have a great rest of your week and a great weekend.